First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, church, this is the final message in this Limitless series, and it's actually our final message in the book of Acts for a little while also. Uh, Because after today, we're going to kind of hit the pause button, as it were, on our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. We're going to take a break for Thanksgiving and for Christmas and possibly even another series that will kick off uh, the year 2021. But we will be jumping back into Acts sometime uh, in the spring, and we will finish out uh, our study of this book. Uh, But this is really a good place to kind of take a break in the book of Acts right here between chapter 12 and chapter 13. Because when we come to Acts chapter 13, really the focus begins to shift to the Apostle Paul and to his ministry, his worldwide ministry of taking the good news to the Gentiles. It's going to be awesome next year to, to walk through those chapters from Acts 13 to the end of the book. Uh, But chapter 12, the chapter that was just read for us, uh, is a really important chapter also in this story of the early church. Uh, The scene in chapter 12 shifts back to Jerusalem, the city where the church was born. We're able to see that in this city of Jerusalem, God is still working. He is still doing amazing things. I think you're going to find that this story is very relatable to, to all of us. It has a lot to teach us. And so as we walk through Acts 12 this morning, I want us to see together three takeaways uh, that hopefully we can go from this place uh, just with understanding about this story. And the first one, again, is something I think we can all relate to. There are days when God's people feel powerless. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I know there have been days where I've felt that way, where it just seems like Uh, the forces that are arrayed against us are just too much for us. Uh, That there's just uh, nothing that we can do, no place that we can turn. Now that's not actually the case, but sometimes we can feel that way. And I'm pretty sure the church in Jerusalem felt that way when some of these things began to happen that we read about at the beginning of this chapter. Look at how it starts in verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. There's this guy named King Herod who is coming after the people of the church. It, It seems as you read on that he's kind of targeting the leaders of the church, perhaps to demoralize everybody else. And now when you read this name, King Herod, it's important to remember there were a lot of people uh, in the Bible that go by the name King Herod, and they are all a part of the same terrible, wacko family, all right? So let me just kind of remind us of of these Herods. So first, there's this guy's grandfather, Herod the Great. Now, that was the Herod who was ruling at the time that Jesus was born. He was the one who killed all of the babies in Bethlehem when he was trying to wipe Jesus out. And then there's the Herod, that is Herod Antipas, who uh, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. He's the one who, along with Pontius Pilate, tried Jesus before he was crucified. And then there's this Herod, who was Herod the Great's grandson. Uh, His name is Herod Agrippa I. 
And then to add to the confusion, this guy also had a son named Herod Agrippa II, who shows up later in the book of Acts, and the apostle Paul has to stand trial in front of him. And so again, it's easy to get all of these Herods confused, but uh, they were all just terrible. So whenever you read the name Herod in the Bible, know that this is a bad dude who is trying to harm God's people, and that's what this Herod is doing here. Now, Herod's childhood buddy, who is now the emperor of Rome, Emperor Claudius, put Herod in charge of this region of the world. And of course, Herod wanted to keep that position. He wanted to keep his power as long as he could. And so many people think, and I agree, that what Herod was doing here was he was trying to curry favor with the Jewish people uh, so that they would like him and would be okay with him being their king. And so he tries to curry favor with them by persecuting these early believers in Christ. And so you can see in verse 2 that he starts out with kind of a test case by taking James, who was one of the 12 apostles, and he has his head cut off with a sword. And you can imagine what a terrible day that was for the people in the church in Jerusalem. This was the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. Maybe you remember that during Jesus' ministry, the mother of James and his brother John came up to Jesus one day and asked him uh, if it would be okay if in the kingdom, her two sons, James and John, could sit on Jesus' right hand and on his left. Do you remember that? And uh, the other apostles, the other disciples didn't really care for that so much, probably because they wanted to sit at the right hand and at the left hand. And yet Jesus turned to James and John and he said to them, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they said, oh yeah, we're baptism, cups, that sounds great. We're willing to do that. And of course, they had no idea what Jesus was talking about, that he was referring to his death, his crucifixion on the cross. That was the baptism. That was the cup that he was referring to. And here we see the fulfillment of that as James does drink that cup. And James does become the first of the twelve to die for the Lord Jesus. In verse 3, it says, because the Jewish people seemed to like that when Herod executed James, Herod thought, okay, all right, you guys like that. I can do more of that. In fact, since you were okay with me executing James, now let me go to the very top. Let me take Simon Peter himself, the leader of the 12, and let me execute him. And so he goes and he gets Peter and he throws him in prison. And it's very clear that Herod has every intention of killing Peter in the very same way that he killed James. But the problem for Herod was that he arrested him right at the beginning of a holy week. The week that follows Passover, the week of unleavened bread, and it really wasn't in good taste for him to be killing anybody during those holy days. And so the feast lasted for seven days, and Peter was in jail for approximately seven days, and Herod had to wait. I want you to put yourself for a moment in the position of these Christians in the city of Jerusalem, And you have just witnessed James, one of the twelve, being beheaded with the sword. Now the leader of the twelve, Peter, has been arrested. And it seems quite likely that the same thing is about to happen to him. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to change it. It would be so easy, I think, 
to feel defeated, to feel powerless. And again, sometimes as Christians, 2,000 years later, we can feel the exact same way. And we can feel the exact same way for the exact same reasons. Sometimes we feel powerless because, first of all, it seems like the enemy is winning. Ever seen that way to you? We know the enemy of the church is, is Satan. He's the one, one who opposes everything that God is doing in the world. As the old song says, sometimes he seems oft so strong. And there's always a Herod around somewhere that he can use as his instrument to attack God's people. There were Herods then and there are Herods now. And sometimes those Herods are in positions of power like this Herod was. And they seem bent on, on harming the church. Now in our current culture, in our country, perhaps that harm to the church can come sometimes through a court decision, sometimes through a lawsuit against a believer who is seeking to live out their biblical convictions. Sometimes it comes through government overreach, telling a church that they can't have worship services with more than 10 people while the casino next door can have as many people as they want. But of course, in other countries in the world where there is less religious freedom than here, the power plays can be even more overt. Like our friends Joy and Karem that we interviewed a few Sundays ago who live in Turkey who are being kicked out of the country of Turkey right now because of their faith in Jesus. Of course, sometimes it's even worse than that. We have all seen heartbreaking stories on the news of our brothers and our sisters in certain parts of the world who met the very same fate even this year that the Apostle James met in Jerusalem long ago. And when you see stories like those, again, it's easy to feel discouraged. It's easy to feel like the enemy is winning. Sometimes we feel powerless because we just don't understand God's will. We just need to be honest about the fact that sometimes this side of heaven, we aren't going to understand God's will. His will is a mystery to us. So think about this chapter that we're looking at here today. In verse 2, God allows James to be beheaded. And then in the middle part of this chapter, in an amazing and dramatic way, God saves Peter from meeting the same fate. Now, why does God do that? Why does he allow James to be beheaded and he saves Peter? The, the answer is we don't know. There are secret things that belong to God and God alone. What we do know is that when James's life ended here, his eternal life began there. And that when he opened his eyes, the first face he saw was the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that Peter was also martyred for his faith a few years after this. Tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down. So the day would come in Peter's life where he would be martyred for his faith as well, but in God's sovereignty, that day wasn't this day. And God is the one who gets to decide that. Sometimes that's hard for us, isn't it? Sometimes we, we don't understand that. Why does, why does one Christian get a job and another Christian that we know loses their job? Why does one Christian that we pray for, they get healed of their cancer, and yet another brother and another sister that we pray for does not? And we don't know. 
Only God does. And we need to rest in him and trust in him, even when we don't understand mysteries of his will. And then just to mention this also, sometimes we feel so discouraged that we just feel like, quote, all we can do is pray. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Well, all we can do now is pray. You know, in in one sense, all we can ever do is pray because the Lord is the one who has all the power. And yet, what a thing to be able to do, to pray, to be able to take our concerns and take our anxieties and our worries and our problems and, and bring them to God and lay them at the throne of God who wants to hear us and wants to answer our our prayers. That's what the early church does in Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. It says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. The word constant prayer there is a word that means fervent prayer or earnest prayer. It, It literally means to be stretched out, to be straining in prayer. It's the same word that's used to describe the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross. Friend, let me ask you something. When is the last time you earnestly prayed about anything? When is the last time that in your prayer time you you tried to grab the very throne of God and earnestly and fervently prayed about something in your life, something in the life of one of your family members, for a lost person, for the church, for the kingdom? When is the last time you earnestly prayed because too often I think in the church today our prayers are empty when they should be earnest and they're flimsy when they should be fervent. What's amazing to me about this story and we're going to see this in just a minute there's some evidence some indication that even though they were praying earnestly about this they didn't actually fully believe that the miracle they were praying for was actually going to happen. And yet, even despite that, even though they were wrestling probably with doubt as they prayed, their prayer was still powerful. And God still heard the prayers of this church and said yes and rescued Peter in a dramatic, miraculous way. And that's what I want us to see next in this story. Yes, there are days when God's people might feel discouraged, but there are also days this side of heaven When God draws back the curtain and he lets us see what he's doing. Here's another way to say that. Number two, there are other days when God's people can plainly see and celebrate what God is doing. Certainly this day when the church got to see Peter miraculously rescued from prison was one of those days. And the way that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, writes this story is, is amazing. And in places, it's, it's pretty humorous also. And we'll see that as we go along. But in verse 6, Herod, the indication is he was going to bring Peter out the very next day. As one person put it, Herod wanted this to be Peter's last night on earth. But God had other plans. Now, the Romans did everything that they could to securely guard Peter. It says that they assigned four squads of soldiers to him. Each squad guarded him for every watch of the night. And in each of those squads, there were four soldiers. Peter was literally chained to two Roman soldiers inside the prison cell. And then another two Roman soldiers were standing guard outside of his jail door. And so that's pretty secure, four guys to guard one prisoner, but not secure enough as it will show to stop an angel of the Lord 
who is coming to get Peter out. Before we even get to that, though, I want you to notice what Peter is doing in verse 6. Look at that with me. It says, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. It may not seem like much, but what does it say Peter was doing the night before he was going to be executed? He was fast asleep. How, how well would you sleep the night before you were going to be executed? And and I don't think there's any explanation for that other than the supernatural peace of God. One person said, while soldiers were guarding his body, God was guarding his heart. And church, that's something we can celebrate in this story. Hopefully that's something you can celebrate in your life if you know the Lord. You can celebrate God's peace. It's one of the ways we see God's hand in our lives. Even when things are hard, even when we're in the very middle of the storm, we can take that to God in prayer and we can have a supernatural peace that the Bible says passes all understanding that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's something that the believer has, this peace that unbelievers do not understand or experience. Verse 7 tells us, The story of his rescue, how an angel of God shows up in the middle of the cell. The light fills the room. The angel strikes him on the side. I'm not quite sure why the angel had to be so violent. Maybe he was a heavy sleeper. I don't know, but he strikes him on the side. He tells him to stand up. The chains fall off of his wrists. He tells him to get dressed. Apparently, there's a supernatural sleep that comes over these soldiers because they don't do anything to try to stop him. And we read here in verse 9, though, that Peter is kind of half asleep the whole time. He thinks he's dreaming or maybe seeing a vision or something. He doesn't actually know that this is really happening. But he stumbles along and he follows the angel out the door. And and it it reads like an action movie, right? They go past one set of guards and they go past a second set of guards. Then they come to these big iron gates. And the mention of those iron gates makes a lot of historians think Peter was being held in the Roman Antonia Fortress, which was right there at the corner of the temple complex. And it had a large iron gate that led out to the streets of the city of Jerusalem. And when they came to those gates, it says the gates opened of their own accord. In fact, the Greek word there is the word we get our word automatic from. The gates opened automatically. Of course, they opened automatically because God opened them. And they went out into the street and they turned down a side street and poof, just like that. The angel was gone. In verse 11, it says Peter comes to himself and he realizes, wow, that that really did just happen. I, I, I wasn't dreaming that. That wasn't a vision. I'm here in the middle of Jerusalem at night. I'm not in the prison cell anymore. I am free. And the reason why he was free is the next reason we can celebrate today, and that is God's grace. I said that this reads like an action movie, and it does, but just to be clear, Peter is not the action hero in this story, right? This is not like Peter is James Bond. He's not like the Mandalorian, right? He's not breaking his way out of the cell and killing all the stormtroopers. That's not what's happening. No, my, my man Peter is half asleep during this. He's being led by the hand like a small child, right? He doesn't even know what's happening until it's over, until the movie is over and the credits are rolling. You say, well, why does that matter? It matters because God is the one who rescued Peter. Peter did not rescue himself. And it's the same in my life and it's the same in your life. The hero of our rescue story is not us, it's God. When he rescued me, I was half asleep. 
In fact, I was worse than that. The Bible says I was spiritually dead. And yet he came into my life and he gave me life. This is how the hymn writer Charles Wesley put it. He said, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And that's all of our story if you've experienced the grace of God. There are days when we see, even in this life, God's grace on display. And certainly our salvation day is one of those days. We can also see and celebrate in these days God's power. Particularly God's power to answer our prayers. And certainly that's what the church in Jerusalem saw this night. Peter's standing there in the street after the angel leaves him. Again, he realizes what happened and he realizes he probably needs to go and tell the church. He needs to tell these believers who have been concerned about him, been praying for him, that he is safe and sound. And so he goes to a woman named Mary's house. Now, just like Herod, there's a lot of Marys in the Bible as well. This particular Mary is the mother of a man named John Mark, the same Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark that we have in our Bibles. And we'll hear more about John Mark as the story of Acts unfolds. Apparently, Mary had a large house, large enough for believers to meet there and worship there and pray there. And so Peter expects that there'll be believers there in her house. And so he goes to her house in the middle of the night. He comes to the gate. And this is kind of a humorous part of the story because he knocks at the gate. And this young girl, Rhoda, who's probably a member of the household, probably also a member of the church. And she hears the knocking at the gate and she comes to the gate and she recognizes Peter's voice, but but she's so excited about it that she leaves Peter, runs back to everybody who's inside the house praying and kind of forgets to, you know, actually like unlock the gate and let Peter inside. And so she runs off and Peter's still knocking at the gate, right? Rhoda, right? Come back, right? He's, He's left outside in the street with search parties probably about to be looking for him. And so that's kind of funny. And that's also kind of funny when she runs into the house and she tells these people who are praying, Peter is here. He's at the gate right now. And what do they say to her? They say, you are out of your mind. They say to her, they basically say, you are crazy. That didn't happen. He's not at the gate. He's in jail. We all know it. And yet, do you remember what they were praying for? <laughs> they were praying earnestly for Peter to be released from prison <laughs> And yet when Rhoda comes and tells them he has been released from prison and he's at the gate, they don't believe it, right? The answer to their prayer is knocking at the gate and they do not believe it. And sometimes it's the same way in our life. Sometimes because maybe God answers in a different way than the way that we expect, we don't believe it. We don't go and answer the gate. Sometimes maybe we're praying for a job and God gives us a job, but it's not the job we wanted. You know, we're like Cousin Eddie. We're holding out for a management position, right? And so, so, so we, don't, we don't go and unlock the gate. Sometimes maybe we're praying that God would meet our financial needs and God maybe puts in front of us an opportunity to take a, a course where we can learn some biblical finances about how to manage our money. But we don't want to answer that gate because that's not how we wanted our prayer to be answered. We wanted like a big hot air balloon to fall in our backyard filled with piles of cash. And when we're praying about something earnestly and fervently, we need to pray believing. We need to pray with our ears listening for the knock at the gate. Well, finally, they let poor Peter in. And of course, the church is overjoyed that 
He is safe and sound. He tells them the amazing story of what God did. And then he tells them, go and tell James and the other leaders of the church. Now, obviously, this is a different James than the James that was martyred in verse 2. This James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James that we have in our New Testaments. And this verse indicates to us that this James was already becoming one of the main leaders of the Jerusalem church. Peter wants him to know that he's safe. In verses 18 and 19, we read the next morning when Herod discovered that his prisoner was gone, he was none too pleased about that. And in keeping with Roman tradition, he ordered that the soldiers be executed who let Peter escape. Then he makes his way down to the city of Caesarea, which was the seat of Rome's power in that region. And that really sets the stage for the last scene of this chapter where King Herod meets his demise. And so far we have seen that this side of heaven, there will be times where God's people feel powerless. We have also seen though that there will be times this side of heaven where we can see and celebrate what our great God is doing. But here's a final takeaway and we cannot miss this. This is something we need to hold on to, something we need to remember no matter how we might feel on any given particular day. Church, there will be a day when God's people win and those who oppose God will lose. In verse 20, it says that when Herod got to Caesarea, he was very angry with some of his neighbors. Now, that's not a surprise. He was always angry with someone. This time, it was his neighbors who lived in the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. Over some unspecified matter, he was upset with them. And these people in Tyre and Sidon were were highly motivated to try to patch things up with Herod because it says here that he controlled their food supply. So he had economic control over them. He was winning the trade war, so to speak. And so they wanted to patch it up. And so they made friends with Herod's assistant, Blastus. They might have bribed him. Uh, We don't know, but somehow they got into his good graces and they got an opportunity to stand before Herod on a very public occasion and basically publicly try to bury the hatchet with King Herod. And so in verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod comes out, he speaks to the crowd says he's arrayed in royal apparel. The Jewish historian Josephus writes about this event, and he adds that Herod's robe was entirely woven of silver, and that when it caught the gleam of the morning sunlight, it radiated brilliantly and all over the crowd. It was a beautiful sight to behold, and when he began to speak, the people in the crowd started shouting, the voice of a god And not of a man. Of course, this was nothing but empty flattery from a crowd that just wanted Herod to like them. But Herod soaks up their praise. He soaks up their worship. Now, what a a contrast that is from Peter. You remember Peter back in chapter 10 in the same city of Caesarea, when he gets to town, this man named Cornelius comes out to meet Peter and falls down in front of Peter and, and starts to worship him. And Peter won't have any of it. Peter says, stand up on your feet. What are you doing? I'm a man just like you are. And so while Peter refuses another man's worship, Herod embraces it and accepts it. And the God who holds all of our lives in his hands decided that in Herod's case, that was it. He had already killed James. 
He had already arrested Peter. He had done countless other wicked things. And now he was robbing God of the glory that was due his name. And he was done. And the Lord Almighty decided that in Herod's case, judgment day was not going to come in the future, but his judgment was going to start right then and right there. In verse 23, it says that an angel struck Herod on the spot where he stood on the stage. It could have been, we don't know, it could have been the same angel that struck Peter on the side in the prison cell. But of course, these two strikes had very different outcomes. And the text tells us why God did it. It's, quote, because he did not give glory to God. Because he robbed God of the glory that was due to him and him alone. And then Luke simply writes that he was eaten by worms and died. Sounds pleasant. And again, the historian Josephus adds a little more color to this and tells us that he was struck while he stood on the stage with a severe pain in his bowels. Also sounds pleasant. And they carried him from the stage back into the palace where he lived another five days in excruciating pain before he died. He died at the age of 54. And so ends the story of this particular King Herod. But like we said earlier, there will always be another King Herod. There will always be another who will try to harm God's people, who will try to attack his church, But here is the truth that this story teaches us. In the end, King Herod always loses to King Jesus. In the end, all those who array themselves against the Lord and against his Christ will lose. And of course, that's a great encouragement to us, to the church, but but it is also a warning. It is a warning to anyone, maybe even anyone listening right now, who has not yet surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus, you have not yet bowed your knee before him. I I wish we had time to go there, but Romans 1 explains that basically all of us, anyone who has not yet trusted in Christ, is essentially doing the same thing that King Herod did. That you are robbing God of the glory that is due his name, You're living for yourself and living for your own glory. And Romans 1 says that every day you do that, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment that is to come. It's a sobering warning in the word of God. The Bible could not be clear that those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus and who die in their sins will spend eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. And this was very striking to me. Remember the way Luke described how Herod died? It said he was eaten by worms and died. Did you know that that's one of the ways that Jesus describes what hell is like? In Mark chapter 9, Jesus himself said, Hell is a place, quote, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Why do I say that? I say that because, friend, now is the time to trust in Jesus. Now is the time to turn to him and to surrender to him as Lord and King because he is Lord and King. And and to receive the forgiveness of sins that he wants to give you. Perhaps that's even why you're here today because he loves you and he is drawing you to himself. That you might become his son or his daughter. 
So there is a, a warning in this passage that we cannot miss, but church, there's also a great encouragement in this passage as well, because after describing how King Herod was eaten by worms and died, look, look at what it says next in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. So the worms keep on eating, but the word keeps on spreading. You know, there are actually three places in the book of Acts. Again, I wish we had time to go to them. Three places where Luke makes a very similar statement to this about the word of God growing and spreading. He says that in Acts chapter 6. He's going to say it later in Acts chapter 19. He says it here in Acts chapter 12. It's almost as if the word of God is one of the major characters in the book of Acts. Just like Paul is, just like Peter is, the word of God is one of the main characters in the book of Acts. And the word of God is marching forward. And the word of God is unstoppable. It doesn't matter who tries to get in its way, who tries to shut it down. The word progresses. It's living, like it says in Hebrews 10, it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And when the word grows, the church grows. And there is great comfort in that. Yes, there will always be attacks against the church. Yes, there will always be Herods out there, but the strength of the church and the growth of the church is not determined by how creative we are or how clever we are. It's about how powerful the word of God is. That the word of God is a tiger that just needs to be unleashed. And what that means for us, church, is that if we will just keep preaching this word and believing this word and sharing this word and living out this word, that we will see the limitless gospel of Jesus Christ change people's lives. And in the end, we will all see that the prophet Isaiah was right, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your unstoppable word. We thank you, Father, that it was through the hearing of your word that our lives have been changed. Father, your word says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so if our lives have been changed in this room, it's because of the good news that is contained in your holy, perfect word. Father, sometimes it is easy in this world to feel discouraged. To look around and based on the limited amount of what we can see to feel like the enemy is winning and yet Father we know that that's not the case. We know that the end has already been written. That in the end your son and our savior Jesus Christ will reign. Father fill us today. Fill your church today with hope and with confidence and with joy because we know you and we know that in the end you win. Father, help us to let our light shine. Father, help us to love those that at this moment do not believe, to love them well, to be willing, even as the apostles were, to suffer even to the point of death if that's what it takes for those around us to know that good news. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 